tonight I want us to look at James chapter 2, because here in this first part of this chapter, we have some wonderful truth, and it's very challenging uh, to think about how we are to treat other people. And God very emphatically teaches us in this passage that we are not to play favorites. Uh, he couldn't say it any clearer, I think, through His direct commands and through the illustrations that He gives us here in this passage. Do not play favorites. This afternoon, my family and I went to eat lunch, and we decided to eat at a restaurant today. We were able to use some of the gifts this morning. Thank you for that, by the way. And we used that and went to eat today for lunch, and we walked in. It was our first time in this particular restaurant, and we were greeted by a very friendly man who uh, works there at the restaurant. In fact, he's related to the owner, and he greeted us, and he said, wow, what a great family, and all these kids, and you're going to need a big table, and it's really crowded in here. He said, don't worry about it at all, though, and he took care of us, and, and we went through the line, and we got our food, and by the time we were done, he had opened up a special room just for us. He didn't know who we are. We were just first-time people to the restaurant, but he had opened up a special room just for us and had a table all set up. He said, you just tell him Uncle Mark told you that uh, you could sit here. So we became good friends with Uncle Mark today at lunch, and uh, he's not my uncle by blood, but he definitely took care of us today like a good uncle would or should. And you know, it's really nice. We know how it feels, and it feels good when somebody treats us with preference in a positive way. They take care of us. He, he didn't have to help us in that way. We were no different than anybody else in there. Our money is the same color to, as everybody else's uh, money, and, but he was showing uh, kindness and graciousness to us, and it really made a big impact in our family and in our life today, and uh, we will remember him, and I think it's pretty likely we will go back and visit that establishment again the food was good, you know, the atmosphere was all right, but when we had that personal touch from Uncle Mark today, that made a big difference. And I can already tell you, if I go back and visit there again and Uncle Mark's not there, it's not going to be the same experience. You know, the way we treat people matters, doesn't it? The way that we uh, relate to others around us makes a tremendous difference. And the Lord speaks about this. This is practical, real-life stuff. But James talks about this here in chapter 2. Verse 1 says, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. It's as if he's saying once again, faith without works is dead, right? Don't, don't have faith, but be a respecter of persons. If you're a person of faith, if you're someone who follows God and wants to be like Jesus Christ, don't be a respecter of persons. Verse 2, for if there come... Unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment. And ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say to him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? Let's stop there. We'll look at a little more of this passage here in a few minutes. But God is clearly telling us here in this first section, and if you've got some notes tonight, this is the first point, that we must show courtesy to all people. We must show courtesy to all people. As a Christian, we are not to play 
favorites, or as he calls it here, being a respecter of persons. In fact, in Romans chapter 2, in verse 11, the Bible says, For there is no respect of persons with God. That God is not a respecter of persons. Ephesians 6 and verse 9, when it's speaking about how masters relate to their employees or to their servants, says, Ye masters, do the same things unto them, forbearing threatening. Don't threaten people. Knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there respect of persons with him. So if God doesn't respect persons looking at their outward appearance, then we should not either. In Colossians 3 verse 25 speaks about the respect of persons in relationship to God's judgment. God says, but he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he shall, which he has done, and there is no respect of persons. What's he saying here? Well, your pedigree doesn't give you a get-out-of-jail-free card, if you will, when it comes to God's judgment. Your relationships, your friendships, the people you're related to, the way you dress or carry yourself does not exempt you from God's judgment. No, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. So with God, there is no respecter of persons, and therefore we must show courtesy to all people. He gives the example, of course, and I'm sure you've maybe heard this before, about this individual who comes into the assembly. This person has a gold ring on, which probably indicates not only their wealth, but their status, that they are related to somebody or a person of power, like the gold signet ring that would signify that this person had authority or had influence in the community. They're wearing goodly apparel, so they're wearing clothing that says this person is rich. And then he says, but there's also someone else that comes in. So this morning we had Bill and Bob. Tonight we have the rich man and the poor man. We have the influential man and the man with no influence. He comes in in his vile raiment. He says, how do you treat these people? Well, in the example that he gives in verse 3, he says, you have respect to him that wears the gay clothing. You look at the guy who's wearing the, the rich clothing. He has the influence, the power, the authority. And you say to him, hey, why don't you sit in a good place? And you give him a special place, a high place, a place of influence. But then you say to the poor, stand over here or sit under my footstool. This is an obvious example. And it's almost as if he's setting this up here with like it's a rhetorical question. You know what a rhetorical question is. It's a question that you really already know the answer, but you're asking it anyway for emphasis. And he's using this illustration. Are ye not then partial in yourselves and are become judges of evil thoughts or literally judges who have evil thoughts? You are judging others with your own evil thoughts. That's not how we are to be living. He says if you're a Christian, if you're a person of faith, then you must not play favorites. And he tells us what we should do instead. Verses 5 through 9, he tells us that we must show compassion for all people. We must show compassion for all people. James chapter 2, verse 5, Hearken, listen up, my beloved brethren. By the way, 
in this whole passage. He's talking to the brethren. He's talking to believers here. He's not talking to unsaved people here. These are believers. My beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom, which He hath promised to them that love Him? So in his statement about showing compassion to all people, he reinforces this truth with four questions. Four questions. The first is this. Hasn't God chosen poor people to be part of His kingdom? Who are you to judge the poor person if God accepts that person as they are? Hasn't God chosen poor people to be part of His kingdom? Matt already got the answer correct. The answer is yes, He has. He has. Then notice the next question. He says, And chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom, which He hath promised to them, that love him, but ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you? So are not rich people, this is the second question, guilty of oppression and slander? Well, yeah. Rich people are not exempt from sin. He's not beating up on rich people or poor people here. He's using this as an illustration to say we often prefer one person over another just based on their influence or based on their appearance. And he's saying both are sinners. Both have needs. Both are prone to actually bring harm. Sometimes we might prefer one. Well, this is a wealthy person. I, I just feel more comfortable around them. I, I feel like they uh, are going to be more like me or they have a better education. He says, rich people can oppress you too. Just because somebody has money doesn't mean that they no longer sin or that automatically makes them a nice person. And just because somebody doesn't have money doesn't make them automatically mean and nasty. Are not the rich people guilty of oppression and slander? And we would say, well, yes, they are. And he then continues on with that question. And he says here in, in, uh, in, at the end of verse number 6, And draw you before the judgment seats? Here's the question, the third question. Are not the rich those who are dragging you into court? Yeah, someone who has enough money to hire an attorney and drag you into court. He said, just because somebody has money doesn't mean that they won't slander you, that they won't draw you into court. And then he has one more question. Look at verse 7. Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by the which you're called? Are not the rich those who slander Jesus' name? He's not saying that a poor person couldn't slander Jesus' name either, but there are plenty of rich who slander the Lord's name. This passage is not an indictment against those who are wealthy. No. It's an indictment against those who would treat people differently because of their wealth or influence. It's not wrong to be rich and it's not wrong to be poor. But it is wrong to treat somebody differently because of what we perceive that they bring to the table or do not bring to the table. So love is right, and that's what he teaches us. Look at verse 8. If ye fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. So how do we overcome this favoritism? By showing compassion to all people. The royal law. We have included this theme in our mission statement as a church. Arise Baptist Church exists for the glory of God 
as we fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. The Great Commandment, the royal law. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So love is right. Favoritism is a sin. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what he's teaching us here. Obedience to this law, the law of love, is the antidote or the answer to prejudice and favoritism. Love others as you want to be loved. Love thy neighbor as thyself. So uh, we're going to have some discussion questions in a few minutes here to work through. But one of those questions is this. Well, if you see somebody else that may look different than you or may make you feel uncomfortable in some way, how do you minister to them? How do you overcome that natural prejudice that might rise up inside of you? And by natural, I don't mean that it's a good thing. By natural, I mean it's a fleshly thing. It's something that comes up in our flesh. But how do we overcome that? The answer is right here. And I hope you'll flesh this out a little more in your discussion group. But the answer is that we love. That we love as God has loved. Love thy neighbor as thyself. And if you do that, he says, you do well. And then look at verse 9. But if you have respect to persons, you commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. This can be challenging. He's speaking to believers. This is a big challenge because he's not talking to unsaved people. These are members of the church. And he's saying, but if you carry prejudice in your heart toward others and you treat them differently because of their standing in the community or their wealth or their influence, then you are not living after the royal law of love. Rather, you are living in sin as a transgressor of the law. And then he goes on a little bit further in this passage. And I think it's really interesting because there might be somebody who after hearing all of that about prejudice and treating people with equality and not showing favorites says, well, okay, I mean, James, don't you think we could deal with a little bit bigger sin? Like, I mean, playing favorites. I mean, come on, everybody does it, right? I mean, these are the excuses that we could make. And the Lord, in His infinite knowledge, inspired James to write a few more verses on this subject to help to answer that critique of what the Lord has already told us to do. The, to the person who might say, well, I mean prejudice, everybody has it. You don't understand why I have this prejudice. Notice what he says in verse 10. And this is to the person who says, well, prejudice isn't the biggest deal. For whosoever should keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. So he's speaking to those who say, well, don't you see, I do a lot of things really good. I'm an upstanding person. I'm really nice. Don't get on me for that prejudice. He says, hey, if you're going to hang on to that prejudice, you're guilty of the whole law. You can't just say, well, this is a little sin. It's not a big deal. No, you're guilty of all. Keep reading verse 11. For he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now, if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. He's showing there's not a hierarchy in the law. If you break one law, it's just like breaking another law in the sense that you are still breaking the law of God. See, we view the law of God often differently than God does because 
God says, this is my law, and if you break it, it's broken. We view the law based around the consequences that we may see or face based on how, if we break those particular laws. For example, he gives two here, adultery and murder, right? If you murder somebody, we often think of that as having major consequences. And it does have major consequences, and it should have major consequences. We think of adultery as that which can have very severe consequences, and it should have severe consequences. But we might look at something like prejudice and say, well, there aren't, that, the consequences for that aren't so bad. So therefore, because it's more prevalent in our society and people seem to get away with it and it's not that big of a deal, therefore we can rationalize in our mind and say, well, then it's not really that big of a deal to God. And what God is saying here is, no, it is a big deal. It is a big deal. Yes, in your society, there may not be the same consequences for prejudice. Even within your own church, there may not be the same consequences for this sin as there are for adultery or for murder. But in the eyes of God, you've still broken His law. For he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now, if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. So speak ye... And so do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. So live a consistent Christian life. It's, it's the Lord saying, He's been consistent with us. His judgment is consistent. God judges sin as sin. He judged any breaking of the law as breaking the whole law. We can count on God to be a consistent judge. Therefore, He says, you need to be a consistent judge as well. And to be a consistent judge is not judging somebody based on outward appearance. Rather, it's letting God be the judge and us love those around us and point them to Him. Look at verse 13. He shall, for he shall have judgment without mercy that hath showed no mercy. So God is a consistent judge, but if you want God to show mercy, then you need to be willing to show mercy. And mercy rejoiceth against judgment. So we have to be consistent in all things. There's two sub-points there under your third point. First one is this, all of God's law matters. That's what he's saying here. It's not that one point is somehow more significant than another point in the eyes of the Lord. It's His law. I had this discussion with somebody just the other day. I said, I think of it this way. You can, you can break a window with a pebble or you can break a window with a sledgehammer, but in both cases, the window is broken. Now, we might say one is more broken than the other, but in both cases, the window still, the, the result is the same. The window is broken and must be replaced. And God's law is that way. We may say, well, it's just a little crack. It's just a small thing. It's not a big deal. This person, man, they're really breaking it into a million pieces. And he says, no, when it's broken, it's broken even if it's just broken in a little point. And the second thing is this, since God is consistent in the judgment of sin, so too we must be consistent in the obedience to God's word. He gives us this example, rich man and this poor man. And we could come up with, I think, different examples. Maybe it's rich, maybe it's poor, Maybe it's educated, maybe it's uneducated, maybe it's somebody who 
lives in the neighborhood I live in versus somebody who doesn't live in the neighborhood I live in. Maybe it's somebody who has a different ethnic background than I do. You could go down the list, right, and come up with all kinds of different things that people are prejudiced towards. And I think all of those would be combined in this area. See, the, the story of the rich man and poor man, this is just an illustration to illustrate the point. In other words, it's not just talking about rich and poor. It's talking about those who would have respect of persons. So if there's any respect or favoritism towards others based on some human standard or arbitrary standard or based on our judgment of them, then that is wrong. And we need to look to the Lord, love others, and point them to Christ. So I've got a few things I want us to think about here in the big group, and then we'll break down into a little bit smaller groups and let you answer these questions together. The first one is this. How can you show love to those who make you feel uncomfortable? Because the reality is this. We often play favorites because of our perception or our desire for comfort. We look at somebody else and we think, hmm, I'm not sure I'm going to be comfortable around them. And that, that comfort thing, that's such a moving target, right? And it's so different based on who we are, right? You're most comfortable probably in your own skin. So if you see somebody else who's just different from you in some way, you begin to feel uncomfortable. It could be as simple as you go over to their house and you smell what they're cooking and you say, hmm, I'm not sure I'm going to like that because I've never eaten that before. That could make you uncomfortable. And because of that, you might say, well, I'm not sure I want to be with this person all the time. They just smell differently than me. We can smile about it, but the truth is it's sometimes as little as that is the kind of thing that begins to create that space. Or maybe it's a difference in age. Or maybe it's a difference in stage or the way they keep their house versus the way we keep our house. It, it, it obviously could be, and these issues are major in our society, the color of somebody's skin. It could be the way that they talk or the accent that they have. It could be any number of things that we look around and say, I just feel uncomfortable. I, I, maybe I can't understand that person talk as well as I can understand myself. You know, it's hard being the preacher because you have to listen to yourself talk and hear and watch videos of yourself and what do you guys know about you know you never sound as good as you think you do in in real life and and you um probably if you're like me you don't really enjoy watching yourself or hearing yourself speak you're like oh i sound like that anybody else have that same experience well in our desire for comfort then Here's the question, how can I show love to others who make me feel uncomfortable? I think that's a good thing for us to discuss surrounding this passage. Second question to consider tonight, when you treat others with kindness, how have you found that this makes them respond? I'm going to save my answer there, but I, I think that you will find if you treat others with kindness, you may be pleasantly surprised by the response that you get and it may help you to overcome some of that discomfort that you're concerned about and then here's the third question i think it's an important one to consider this is real life theology stuff right how do you deal with the concern that you will be taken advantage of if you're kind to somebody else 
We, we live in a world like that today. Well, I just don't feel safe. Or I've been kind to somebody before and they did not reciprocate that kindness or they treated me badly. How do you think about this? Mom with little ones. You know, how do you think about it? Well, I got to take care of my kids. I got to make sure they're safe. Those are realities that we live in in this world. And I, I don't think that we should just discard that and pretend that, oh, don't, don't worry about keeping your kids safe. Just let them run around and it'll all be okay. No, I think we have to be wise and care for those that God has given us to care for and protect those God has given us to protect. But can we do that and still show love? Let's talk about that a little bit tonight and see what that looks like. I'm, I'm really enjoying our time together in the book of James, and I'm really enjoying this format of what we're doing here with some teaching and then some breakup for discussion time together. And as has already been talked about, we are moving to um, even uh, more focus in this format on Sunday evenings. We're going to make that full transition, Lord willing, in February of next year. And really, the main differences between that and where we are right now is the fact that instead of teaching for 30 minutes or 25, 30 minutes like we're doing right now, we're going to shorten the teaching time up here to the group to about 10 to 12 minutes. Uh, so we'll still have this time. Uh, but then we will beef up the question and the accountability time and at least initially, we'll start you off so you'll know you're coming to the same group of people each time. One additional piece that I'm going to start doing is, come February, I, we will be sending out the notes and discussion questions and passage of Scripture that we'll be covering ahead of time uh, so that you will have a week or two or more so that you can be reading and thinking through some of these things ahead of time so that when you come to the discussion time with your discipleship group, you're not coming in sort of like, well, we just heard what Pastor said for, for a few minutes, so now let's talk about it. Hopefully, you'll be able to take some time to review that during the week leading up to it um, and be thinking through those things, reading the scriptures, so that you can come and bring even more to that conversation. The desire in that time then is that we will encourage one another with some accountability. You know, hey, what are you thinking? Are you reading? Because when you sit down and you're like, well, I didn't read. Well, now there's something we can encourage this person about. Hey, maybe I have a hard time reading the Bible. or Maybe I struggle to read it and actually make sense of it. Well, this is a good format to be able to work through and help each other grow through that. We also hope, this is my desire and my prayer, that this will be a time where you might be able to bring somebody else with you. Um, and encourage them and see that group grow. So while the format is continuing to morph and change a little bit as we go forward, the focus is not changing. Um, Chandy and I were talking about this today. I said, I, I believe the target is the same. It's making disciples. It's pointing people to Jesus Christ. And uh, as we continue to try to aim for that target, we are adjusting the format by which we can better discuss and encourage and grow one another in their walk with the Lord as we move towards that as a goal. So I am definitely open to your thoughts and suggestions, your questions, your comments as we work through this process. Uh, I think the goal is clear. We want to be like Jesus Christ. Um, but as we work through that, 
And uh, if you have concerns or questions or say, I'd like to think about this or what about this or this isn't working, those are really helpful things because we're all on that same journey together of becoming like Jesus Christ. So let's, uh, I'm going to close this portion in a word of prayer and then let's divide up and let's work through some of these questions tonight and uh, see what we can learn and take with us tonight as we think about this passage of Scripture. Father, we ask that these next few minutes as we discuss this truth would be a help and a challenge to each of our lives. The truth, I believe, is very plain here. But we also understand that the life we live from day to day sometimes feels very complicated. Sometimes it's our own overcomplication of things. Lord, I pray that you give us wisdom and understanding to help us know how to deal with some of these real issues that we face on a weekly or even a daily basis. And may we be a church that is loving, that stands on the truth, and that points people to Jesus. It's in His name that I pray. Amen.